Turn your Bibles tonight to Psalms chapter 32. Psalms 32. We want to, I think I'll start by reading these 11 verses here uh, in Psalms chapter number 32 and then introduce to you our topic and what we're going to be looking at here. Psalms 32, beginning in verse number one, a psalm of David, Meshiel, blessed is he who trans, whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgression unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin, Selah. For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place, and thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance, Selah. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eyes. Be ye not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord's mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. Well, we've been looking at a practical uh, things of life, uh, addressing some different areas or aspects of life under the auspice of how to. Just really practically looking at how do you do this? How do you accomplish this? Or how do you walk through this? And there's many of those that uh, we've gone through because this is something that I just kind of, I'll hit two or three or four of them in between different series that we've had. So they they probably go back quite a ways on sermon audio, but there's a good number of them available there. Uh, I want to between now and Christmas, look at a couple of the emotions that we need to learn how to control or live with or deal with. Many times, emotions are controlling us instead of us controlling our emotions. Uh, We really need to have our emotions under control. When your emotions are running your life and then your emotions are running wild, you're bound to get yourself in trouble. You're bound to end up doing something that you would not normally do. We have all seen that with somebody who uh, loses their temper and does something and then they regret what they did because they weren't in control of themselves. They lost their temper and did something they wouldn't do. You end up acting or or you end up reacting uh, instead of acting. You end up responding incorrectly, saying things you wouldn't normally say and doing things you wouldn't normally do. And we've got to be very careful with that. Some of the emotions that I'm looking at considering, but things that oftentimes grip us and maybe control us is fear, temptation, doubt, bitterness, loneliness, 
depression, discouragement. And this evening, I would like us to look at guilt. Guilt. We have already addressed and looked at, uh, it was just over a year ago uh, that I talked about anger and uh, how to overcome anger. And when we went through that study, I had several people uh, come and express uh, real appreciation for the study on that and how it challenged them spiritually to be sure they were in control of their own spirit. But we want to look this evening at this idea of how to be free from guilt. How to be free from guilt. We've read Psalms 32, and Psalms 32 has been called a view into the heart of a guilt-ridden conscience. As you walk through this Psalms 32, you see a man that was riddled with guilt, but learned how to live in grace. And that's, as Christians, what we need to do. We need to understand the forgiveness of God and uh, experience that and come to the place where we can live without that guilt. The fact of the matter is, as many people in our world today, a lot of the emotional problems that people are dealing with, I think, are rooted in guilt. Because that guilt weighs on them continually and they just can't get away from it. And it, it manifests itself in many other aspects of their life and many other ways that, that ultimately people look at and they, they end up calling it depression or discouragement or uh, anxiety or these other things that they end up dealing with. Because at the root of it, there's guilt that hasn't been resolved. It's not just in the world, though. I believe there are many people that are in our churches, in good churches, that are living under the unbearable weight of guilt on their heart. They get to the place where they are sick of it, where they are sick with it, and would just about do anything to shed it if they could. Guilt, well, it's possible. God does not want us to be living under a weight of guilt. It's something that God has made provision for. And so this evening, I would like us to look at, and I don't know that I'll get through all of the notes tonight. This might have to be a, a two-part series because this is something that I believe uh, faces, uh, if you're not currently right now dealing with this in a direct way, it's something that people you know are dealing with. And uh, it's something that you as an individual will cross over and deal with at some point. And we need to understand the biblical idea and principles that are given to us here. We're going to use Psalms 32, although the Word of God has a lot to say about guilt and how to deal with it. We'll give you a bunch of other references, and I'll try to move slow enough that you can take notes if you'd like to. But we want to see, first of all, the root of guilt. The root of guilt. Where, where does it begin? Where does it come from? What should be our understanding of this? I would have you look, first of all, at verse number two. We're going to read verse one and two together here in a minute, but I want you to see in verse number two, he says, Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. So by that statement, there are some whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. He is not putting iniquity on, on their heart, not bringing it before them. And I hope this gives, makes better understanding maybe as we move through this a little bit, but uh, there are some whom the Lord doesn't do that. And then by implication or by the reverse, there are others whom the Lord does impute iniquity. 
because it hasn't been taken care of. It hasn't been put under the blood of Jesus Christ yet. They have not experienced forgiveness yet. And so they have uh, iniquity imputed unto them, sin that is ever before them. I want you to see that the root of it really is it comes from God. Guilt that comes in the heart of man that weighs on us is something that I would say is a gift from God that functions as a warning sign for the heart of man. It's a gift from God. The conscience is the regulator of guilt. So the conscience is the control for where this guilt comes from and how this guilt uh, weighs on our heart, the conscience of man. I want you to know that your conscience is not uh, to be understood to be the voice of God. Your conscience is not the law of God. Your conscience is not the source of divine revelation. What your conscience or what you feel in your heart, because as we'll, we'll get into this a little bit, but you can have an improperly trained conscience. You can have a conscience that uh, is not necessarily in line with the law. So it's vitally important that we have a conscience and we get that through spending time in the word of God and our conscience is shaped and molded by the spirit of God and uh, directed by him. But I want you to know just because you have something in your heart or on your conscience uh, does not make it law. It doesn't make it, uh, you know, we got to get back and realize that it has to come from God, not just something in our heart. Your conscience is not the teacher, but the thermostat. And your conscience, the thermostat that is controlled by the highest standard you currently perceive. Now, I'm asking you to engage your brain on a Thursday night uh, after a long day of work and all that. I understand. But <clears throat> I hope that it makes sense to you. What you understand is that your conscience currently is a thermostat that is controlled by the highest standards you currently perceive. Do you know there are some people, especially in the world today, it seems like less and less do people feel that it is wrong to lie. I mean, I've read surveys. I don't have the statistics with me, but I've had them and used them in the past. We've talked about this before. But uh, the, the idea that, well, some would just flat out say, well, it, it's okay to lie. Others would say it's, it's okay to lie if it's for a good cause, like to keep me from getting in trouble. <laughs> That's a good cause, amen. Uh, it's, you know, what I'm saying is their conscience, the highest standard they currently perceive because they've been brought up in a secular world, their standard, which controls their conscience, has not come to the place where it lines up with this yet. So their current highest standard of perceived right and wrong is what dictates or controls their conscience. So we've got to be sure that as we begin to be brought into the image of God and conformed to the image of Christ, that we have a conscience that is trained and prepared in line with God and his word. By God's design, our conscience is woven into the framework of man. 
Make a note of Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Romans 2, four, why don't you turn there in the Word of God? I want you to see it because it's, it's a little bit wordy. And if I just read it to you, I, I'm afraid you'll not, you'll not catch it. You know, it won't, uh, it won't sink in. And I want you to see how this conscience in the framework of man, how it functions by the highest standard we currently perceive. In Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, he says, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law... Okay, you see the Gentiles don't have the law, so their conscience is not going to be shaped by the law because they don't have it. He says, but do by nature the things contained in the law, that is the law that's written on their heart, their current level of conscience as God, God has given them. These, having not the law, are a law unto themselves. So their own conscience, that is their law. Verse number 15, he says, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. So I know that's, that's really wordy, but he's saying basically you've got a group of people that have not been exposed to the law of God, the law and the prophets, the book, the word of God, but they do have, we know, the law of God written on the heart of man. And if they haven't uh, squashed that, uh, suppressed it, uh, done, tried to hide it or get away from it, they do have the law of God written on their heart. That is their current level of revelation and their conscience is going to be controlled by that. But you have some people who have been exposed to the law and their conscience has been informed directly from God in this way and so their conscience is controlled by this. And the conscience either accuses or excuses you as an individual. Does that make sense? That is the controller for the guilt that we feel. That conscience that God has given us. So the conscience, beloved, is what separates man from the animal kingdom. God gave man the ability to make moral self-evaluations. The animal kingdom does not have that ability. So it's possible for us to have an inadequately trained conscience or an improperly trained conscience. There are some things people maybe feel guilty about that they don't need to feel guilty about. There was a boy in his home one evening, and there was a great power outage. And they're all sitting in the dark, and the boy began to cry. And mom and dad came to him and says, well, what's wrong? Why are you crying? Are, are you scared? Are you afraid? And he says, no. No, and he just kept crying. And after a while, they said, well, would you tell us what's wrong? Why, why are you crying? And he, he, for a while, he, he didn't want to say anything. But finally, he, he, he spoke up and he said, well, this is my fault. And they're like, what's your fault? He says, I was on my way home from school and I kicked the light pole. <laughs> so he thought that he caused the power outage. <laughs> Because he kicked the light pole on his way home from school. He had his conscience and the guilt was just weighing on him heavy because he felt like he caused all this power outage in the whole community and nobody had power because he kicked the pole, you know. Well, obviously, that's, that was not guilt that he needed to bear. And sometimes we as Christians, you know, Satan is the accuser of the brethren and he'll bring things into your heart or mind or upon your life as an accuser and cause you to carry guilt for things that you don't need to carry guilt for. 
We need to have a conscience that we let God control and that guilt is a gift from God that helps us, but it's got to be guilt that's from him, not improperly placed guilt. You can have an improperly trained conscience and you can assume guilt that is not yours, but you also can forego or let go of guilt that you should carry. Guilt that is your fault. If you have an improperly trained conscience, you know, how many of you have seen some young people that really haven't been taught how to treat others very well? And you, you, you look at them and you think, how can you treat another boy or girl like that? It doesn't bother their conscience at all to be so viciously mean to another young boy or girl. You see, they haven't been trained. They haven't been taught how wrong that is. So they can be vicious, very cruel to another boy or girl, and their conscience not even bother them because their conscience hasn't been trained and in line with the Word of God. The Anglican theologian Richard Sibbs, he said, those that look to be happy must first look to be holy. And he, in one of his writings describing the conscience of man, said the conscience has the ability to assume every role in the courtroom. Now, I'm going to give you some text along with these things. First of all, he says that it is a register that records everything we've done in great detail. In Jeremiah 17 and verse number 1. Jeremiah 17.1, he says it's a register that records every detail. And in Jeremiah 17.1, it says, The sin of Judah is written with a pin of iron and with the point of a diamond. It is graven upon the table of their heart and on the horns of your altars. You see, God is saying the sin that you've committed, it's written an iron pen on your heart. It, it is a register, he says, it records everything that you do, whether good or bad, and your conscience does that. It, it, it acts, he says, secondly, to acts as both the accuser and a defender. And we read this verse already, but Romans 2.15, where we describe the idea where it says he can be both excuse or, uh, ex, excuse or accuse one another. So either one there in, in Romans 2.15, it can do either one. It can accuse us when we do wrong, but it also can excuse us when we should not be bearing that conscience, that, that, that guilt. He says it acts as a witness. 2 Corinthians 1, verse number 12. He says, for our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, okay, the testimony, the witness of our conscience, that in simplicity... In godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you word. He says there's the, the witness or the testimony in the scriptures, the testimony of our conscience. It acts as a witness against us or a witness before us. You know, one time Timothy was having a problem at school. The staff kind of accused him of doing something. And he came to me and he says, Dad, I didn't do it. I said, then don't worry about it. I said, if you have a clear conscience before God, you, you are not responsible for what other people think or perceive. You can't, you can't change that at this point. 
it's not going to do you any good to get mad about it. You can't, you can't do anything. I said, so you really didn't do it. And he's like, I didn't do it. I said, then you don't have anything to worry about. You see, your, your conscience can, can excuse that. You know, somebody may come up to you and accuse you of something. You just, you know how sometimes between siblings things happen and they, they you know, they accuse each other and then, uh, or, or do something and, and they'll be like, well, you wouldn't have responded that way except you have a guilty conscience. You know, it's your, your guilt's the one accusing you right now. And uh, it goes back and forth so that the guilt can function that, that way in our heart through our conscience. It functions as a witness uh, to give us uh, an excuse or to accuse us. Uh, and it functions that way. Then we see that he says it is also the judge that condemns or vindicates in 1 John 3, 20 and 21. He says, for your heart, condemn us. He said, for our heart, sorry, for our heart condemns us. Greater, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence towards God. So it can condemn us or vindicate us. Your conscience, the guilt, if it's properly trained, it can condemn you or it can vindicate you. And he says it's the executioner. In uh, 1 Samuel 24, 5, he says, And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. Now, you guys know the story of there where uh, David went and he, of course, had already professed and told all of his men who wanted to kill Saul, no, we're not going to touch God's anointed. It was God's, God's king and God had put him in that position. And so he went and he thought, well, I'll just, I'll just kind of mock him a little bit. I'll make fun. I'll let him know how close I was. And David cut off Saul's, the, the hem of his garment there and uh, his heart smote him. It immediately, his conscience, that guilt immediately smote him and uh, convicted him that what he did was not what he should have done. So I want you to understand that modern man has come to view the conscience as a curse that merely robs men of their self-esteem. The idea of guilt and all of that, and we're going to talk a little bit more about it in a minute when we get to the response to, to guilt uh, and an incorrect response. But what I'm saying is that we're looking here at this root of guilt, where it comes from. We need to understand that it comes from God and it's a gift from him. And we are to respond accordingly, respond correctly. But the world would say, hey, don't worry about that. You shouldn't be feeling that at all. But it comes from God and it should be listened to. So we want to see the role of guilt. God has given us this gift, and what is it supposed to do for us? Look at verse number three. Verse three and four here in uh, our, our text, if you're back there in Psalms. Psalms 32. So we're going to walk through this text here and get all of our points will come right from this, Psalms 32. He says in verse number three, he says, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. I want you to know the role of guilt, what it does is guilt disquiets the conscience. 
It disquiets the, con the conscience. It removes the peace. He said, day and night, the hand of God laid heavy on my heart. Every day it was this way. Every night it was this way. I couldn't get away from it. I mean, it was just there all the time. You see, David knew that he had committed sin. He knew he had done wrong. Guilt is a reminder of the sin that you've committed. We would like to be able to commit the sin and then just forget it and get away from it and okay, it's done and gone. You know how many uh, prisoners or, or uh, criminals have been caught because of a guilty conscience? Because they can't get away from what they did and so they can't act normal, they can't function normal because they've got in the back of their mind this, this guilty conscience and they can't just function normal. Uh, William Wadsworth said, from the body of one guilty deed is a thousand ghostly fears and hauntings that proceed. So he said, one deed that you're guilty of brings thousands of ghostly fears that haunt you continually. These fears that haunt you and they're continually there, it disquiets your soul it discomforts you. It removes the peace that you want to have. And that's by God's design. You know how David said in Psalms 51, verse number three, he said, my sin is ever before me. You guys remember the verse? My sin is ever before me. It's amazing you can continue with your day and you can go on doing whatever else you're, you would normally do and yet you have a guilty conscience and your sin is ever before you. It just keeps coming up. It just keeps showing up. It, it, it just keeps getting you and you just can't get away from it. That's by God's design. It's to disquiet your soul. It's to discomfort you. It's to remove the peace. You see, David knew he had taken another man's wife. This text here in Psalms 32 is in reference to the sin of David where he committed adultery with Bathsheba, Uriah, the Hittite's wife. He knew he had done wrong. And then to compound that sin, he committed another sin and had Uriah essentially murdered, sent to the front of the lines and was told to back away. So basically he's, he's going to get killed in battle. One of his mighty men, one of, one of the great generals that he had, a man who, uh, you know, had character and discipline, and David had him killed. David thought he was hiding his sin, but he couldn't hide it. It was ever before him. And beloved, your sin will, will continue. You will not have peace until you take care of it, until you respond correctly to this conscience, to the guilt. Guilt removes the inner peace. You've all seen somebody with a guilty conscience. A guilty conscience takes you on a guilt trip. And they say that's the worst trip you could ever go on. It will haunt you. The uh, British author, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, you know, the author of the Sherlock Holmes uh, series, uh, he was known as a jokester, uh, loved to play practical jokes. He had some friends around London there, and uh, he sent a telegram to 12 of his closest friends, and the telegram simply said this, flee at once, all has been discovered. That's all it said, anonymously, 
a note. Flee at once. All has been discovered. Within 24 hours, all 12 of those guys were out of London. You talk about a guilty conscience. That's what the Bible says, uh, you know, the wicked flee when no man pursueth. Because the conscience is there. That conscience is haunting them. And, and they, you know, he, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was just joking around. He just was playing a trick on them. Says, hey, uh, whatever you've done, they know about it. And all of a sudden, these, these men are like, oh, my goodness, I got to get out of town. It tells you how many people really are living with a guilty conscience. You see, not only did David know that he had committed a sin, but David understood that he had done what he could to conceal the sin. Look at verse number three there. He says, when I kept silence. You see, beloved, what really puts your guilt into overdrive is when we strive to conceal the sin. The actions of adultery was just the beginning. The sin that followed was an effort to conceal the first sin. David's sin left him defiled before God, but it was David's silence that disquieted his spirit because he wasn't willing to admit it. He wasn't willing to acknowledge it. Seneca, <coughs> he was a Stoic philosopher who actually tutored Nero and then later was killed by Nero because Nero thought he was plotting against him. But Seneca said this, every guilty person is his own hangman. You don't need somebody else to hang you because your conscience is, is, is hanging you every day. Every guilty person is his own, own hangman. What you've done, how you failed, where you send, it puts a noose around your neck and pulls tighter and tighter the memory of that sin that is unconfessed. You guys remember the, the movie they made many, many years ago. Uh, the title of it was The Great Train Robbery. Um, you guys don't remember that? Okay, some of you older folks, yeah. Uh, well, the Great Train Robbery was actually an actual event. It took place in 1963. Uh, these crooks halted the Glasgow to London Royal Mail Train, and they stole $2.6 million. In 1963, I looked it up. The current value of that is $61 million, is what it would be worth today. They, the majority of that money was never found. They never got it back. Although they did find uh, the culprits, those people, almost all the people that were involved, there are still some that were at large, but uh, most of them were caught. Listen to what some of those guys that robbed this mail train said. Bruce Reynolds was one of the two guys that really uh, organized it. He said, anyone who thinks that crime pays must be mad. I mean, he got away with what would be $61 million, and he said crime doesn't pay. James White, another culprit on this, said that at the end, that he was at the end of his tether. He said, thankfully, when he was caught, thankfully, it's over. 
Ronald Edwards, when he came and surrendered, he stated that he was living a crazy and unnatural life. Charles Wilson said it wasn't worth it. His wife said, the nagging fear of discovery gave me a permanent headache. Yeah, guilt is its own hangman. And there are so many people, even Christians, that are living, unnecessarily so, with guilt. David has given us a picture of that in this psalm. So we want to see the response to guilt, the response to guilt. Man needs to be careful that we respond correctly. This world would have us respond incorrectly. You see, the first thing they want to do is they want to just try and suppress the guilt. They don't want to get it right and fix the problem. They want, don't want to acknowledge their sin or return the money they stole or, or make it right. You guys know that uh, uh, Teslas have what's called a sentry mode. How many of you know what that is? Okay, like three of you. Uh, well, it's, it's a mode that Teslas have like 12 cameras on them. And it's a mode that within, anybody comes within like six feet of the vehicle, the cameras start recording. And uh, numerous times now, people that aren't aware of that, there's been several like hit and runs where people like backed into a Tesla in a parking lot and thought, oh, I'll just take off. But the problem is, is the car starts recording as soon as that other vehicle got within six feet and it recorded their license plate. They backed into it and drove away, but it recorded their license plate. They know, they know exactly who did it. Uh, I watched one this week where a lady, I, they still don't know why she did it. She's no comment as to why. Maybe she's just bitter about somebody else having a nice car. She got out of her car and she keyed the whole side of the Tesla. She just keyed, put, just scraped the paint all the way down the side of the Tesla got in her car and drove away. Problem is, <laughs> is the car recorded exactly who did it. She's on video with her key going down the side of the car and then she drove away and it recorded her license plate and the police went right to her house and she tried to deny it. She's like, no, I didn't do that. Like, well, we have you on video, okay? There's, there's no denying this. You, did, you don't want to get it right. The, the proof is right there. And today, many people want to respond incorrectly to guilt. They want to suppress it or hide it. A man went to the doctor once, and he had been misbehaving. His conscience was really bothering him. And he asked the doctor, he said, could you prescribe me something that will help? The doctor said, sir, I don't have any drugs that can help you behave better. The guy said, I don't want to behave better. I want you to silence my conscience. And that's really how the majority of the world would like to deal with this guilt that weighs on them. And that's why, in, in, by and large, a large part of uh, the alcoholism and drugs and all these things, the people are living with a guilty conscience and they'll do anything they can to silence it for just a little while. And drugs and alcohol does that. It removes it for a little while. But that's an incorrect response. America today has declared war on, our, on guilt. Society today encourages sin, but has no toleration for the guilt that sin brings. This is by God's design that we are to be able to and should feel guilt when we do wrong. But by and large, men today, society today, doesn't want to feel guilt they want to, want to be able to sin 
and live guiltless. But they are guilty before God because they've transgressed the law. Dr. Wayne Dyer, author of a best-selling book titled Your Erroneous Zones, named guilt as the most useless and erroneous of all behaviors. He said it is a neurosis. Guilt must be exterminated, sprayed clean, sterilized from the heart of man forever. That's how the world feels about the guilt that God puts in our heart when we do wrong. They want to be able to sin, but don't want the guilt that comes with it. And a society that gives themselves over to sinfulness of the heart is described in the book of Romans. And there are many things that come when men live under the weight of that guilt. Even Ann Landers whom, you know, pretty, you know, I mean, I always thought of her as a uh, kind of like, you know, just home style, you know, writing, you know, night, feel good stories and stuff like that. Ann Landers said this, one of the most painful, self-mutilating, time and energy consuming exercise in the human experience is guilt. It can ruin your day if you let it. It turns up like a bad penny when you do something dishonest, hurtful, tacky, selfish, or rotten. Never mind that it was the result of stupidity, ignorance, laziness, a weak flesh, or mere clay of feet. You did wrong, and the guilt is now killing you. Too bad it's normal. Remember that guilt is a pollutant, and we do not need any more pollutants in the world. She said a lot of truthful things there. You're, you're, you've done wrong. You were dishonest. You stole. You, you, you lied. You, you, whatever you did, it was wrong, and you knew it was wrong, and that guilt is weighing on your heart. That's all true. But then he says, then she goes on and says, we just need to do away with guilt. It's a pollutant. That's how the world views it, and that's why they respond incorrectly to it. That's one of the hard things about, you know, you can't get somebody saved until you get them lost. They need to see themselves as a sinner guilty before a thrice holy God. But they have been raised and trained in society today to do away with all guilt and to be able to live their life guiltless. And it usually takes quite a bit for men to see themselves as a sinner before a holy God. And that's why, in, why in part, why we're seeing less and less people come to Christ today. Because why would they call on God for forgiveness when they don't feel they've done anything wrong? They don't feel the weight. I mean, how many times have you heard somebody talking about getting saved and experiencing the forgiveness of God and how it was just this huge weight removed off of their shoulders? That's the weight of guilt removed by the forgiveness of God. And that's what it's supposed to do. But somebody's not going to come to God that has, feels no weight of guilt. We need to respond correctly to guilt. How do you do that? Look at verse number five in, in Psalms here. Psalms 32, verse number five. I'm going to give you these two things and we're going to wrap it up tonight. But I want you to see, he says here, first of all, you acknowledge 
your sin. He said in verse number five, I acknowledge my sin unto thee. Mine iniquity have I not hid. We know that David initially sinned and he did all he could to hide it for a long time. Until he was confronted by the, Nathan, by the prophet Nathan, who gives him the illustration of what he did. And David got a little indig, indignant about somebody that would do such, such a crazy thing. And then, you know, the prophet Nathan put his finger in, in the king's face and said, thou art the man. And then all of a sudden, like a ton of bricks, all of that came all of that weight and that guilt that had been weighing on his heart and that had been ever before him. Every day, he's going through his day and acting like everything's fine and putting a smile on his face. And to put it in New Testament times, he's carrying his Bible and he's coming to church and he, he, he looks like everything's okay, but he's living with guilt on his heart and mind. And he had to come to the place where he was willing to acknowledge his sin, to see it as God sees it. You're never going to be free from the guilt that's haunting you until you are able to acknowledge it as sin. Are you willing to call it what God calls it? You see, David knew adultery was wrong. David knew murder was wrong. But he had to come to the place where he had to realize that even as a king, he was not above God's law. God had said, it's sin. And as king, he probably thought, well, I can get away with this. I'm the king. I can brush it under a rug. I can hide it this way. I can do, do it, and I, I will be okay. But ultimately, he had to come and realize that even as king, he's still under God. And God's law stands. David had to acknowledge his sin, call it what God called it. We see he had to admit his sin. He said, in verse number five, there I will acknowledge my sin unto thee, my iniquity I have not hid. I said, I will confess my transgression unto the Lord. You see, he had to stop hiding it and confess it. Confession has the aspect of turning around. Confession is repentance. Coming to God and repenting of that sin, confessing it to God, repenting of it, which you know repenting is turning 180 degrees the other way. It's turning from that sin. It's confessing it to God. You know Proverbs 28, 13, he that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whosoever confesseth and forsaketh it shall have mercy. So if we're ever going to be free from guilt, it comes... Because we respond correctly to it. Stop hiding it. Stop trying to silence it. Stop trying to just suppress it and get through your day because it's going to continue to come back up. Maybe you're doing okay, but in the quiet of the night, you start to feel it. When you're alone and nothing else is going on and the Holy Spirit can reach down into the stillness of the day and, and touch your heart, then you, it's brought back before you. And you're never going to know peace until you're willing to acknowledge and admit, confess and forsake, and you can know peace. I don't have time to go into these last two points here tonight. We'll deal with these, but the removal of guilt, I want you to know that the removal of guilt is something that God does. God takes that from you. And the concluding thought is the release of guilt. That's something that you have to do.
And we're going to talk about those two things next Thursday, the removal of guilt and the release of guilt.